Turn your Bible to Psalm 79. Psalms chapter 79. Worshipful prayer, studying the Psalms of Asaph. We started in Psalms 73 and we talked about worship and perspective. We went to Psalm 74 and we talked about worship and lament or worship and grief. Went to Psalm 75 and talked about worship and God's righteous judgment. Psalm 76, and we talked about worship and something I forgot. And then Psalm 77, I try to remember these every week and I always forget. Um, I cried into God with my voice, even to God with my voice. Who, who took sermon notes last week? It was worship and what? Perseverance. In Psalm 77. And now we're in Psalm 79. You might be thinking, why are we skipping Psalm 78? Well, I wrote a message for Psalm 78 to be preached tonight, and I wrote that last weekend. And after I studied the 72 verses of Psalm 78 and wrote that message, I was absolutely convinced that the entire church needed to hear it. Not because of, uh, like it's, a, it's an extra special message like great message that I that I wrote, nothing like that. It's the content of it. And so it has everything to do with worship and succession. And so 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 how do we pass on our faith to the next generation in our family? How does this church, the generation of this church right now, pass on the faith to the generation coming behind us? And Psalm 78 is going to teach us how we can set up our kids to have the best chance to worship as passionately as we do. And, and, and because, now this is a great group. I, don't get me wrong. You're worthy of that message for sure. But there are a lot of moms and dads that are serving in corners of the building. And I want them to hear that message really bad. And so we're going to preach it this Sunday afternoon for our afternoon service. And so we'll go have the youth fundraiser, uh, eat lunch over there, and then come back at 1.30. So really quick turnaround time. And I will preach that message. Now, now here's what I'll promise you. Don't get scared about the 72 verse thing. Um, I won't break it down word for word, verse for verse. I promise I won't. There's a big idea in this song that we'll track through. And, and you're going to understand what it is very clearly. Um, we'll cover the entire text, but not, not like I normally preach. Very, very detailed with every verse. And so that's why we're going to Psalm 79. So... Um, I wrote another message out of Psalm 79, wanting to continue in that line of thought. And this one is very unique. It's very unique. And, and here's the title of it. Worship and imprecation. <laughs> Worship and imprecation. Let, let me spell imprecation for you. I-M-P-R-E-C-A-T-I-O-N. Now, I really don't say that be, to sound smart. It really is the term that you're supposed to use. I, I don't know another term to use for it. They call them imprecatory psalms. Okay, so, so it really is a term. I'm going to define it for you. And it's this. Imprecation is simply a spoken curse that invokes misfortune upon someone. All right. And <laughs> I don't have to teach you, Dad. An imprecatory psalm... You speak curses on me all the time. An imprecatory psalm is where the psalmist, okay, under the inspiration of God, let's remember that, 
does just that. He invokes a curse upon somebody by calling down God's calamities, God's destruction, God's anger, God's judgment on God's enemies. All right. Now, the reason why this is interesting is because a lot of believers today have a hard time believing that imprecation can be part of our worship today. Most, not most, some think that that imprecation is part of the old covenant with Israel. You know, the blood and guts type of days in the Old Testament. They, they believe it's, it's for that, but under the new covenant and the dispensation of the church age, that, that it's not for the New Testament believer today. And some really have a hard time reconciling these kind of Psalms where, where they literally pray down fire from heaven on God's enemies. And so we're going to study that. Because we've already went through some imprecatory psalms in the study of David's psalms. And already in the study of Asaph's psalm, there's some imprecatory psalms. And so we're, we're going to study, what is that all about? Why are they doing that? And, and, and what is, the, what is imprec imprecation's role in our worship today? Does it play a role? Okay, now here's what I want you to do. No matter what side of the argument you would naturally be on. If you would naturally oppose that, that, that line of thinking, like, no way, we, it's not our job to call down judgment on God. That's not our job. We're supposed to love our enemies. So if you'd fall naturally on that side of the issue, fine. If you fall naturally on, on the side of the issue over here, it's like, all I need is permission. <laughs> um, then, and there's going to be both people in this, in this, this, even this smaller group tonight. There's going to be both people based on your personality or your upbringing or just the way you view the world right now. And, and, and so... So no matter where you're at, here's what I want you to do. Just push park on those biases for a second. Okay? And by the way, you should push park on the biases every time you open up the Word of God. Don't take personal bias into the Word of God. So, so push park on that for a second. Have an open mind to what thus saith the Lord. Okay, that's what we want to study tonight. So I want to read the psalm in its entirety. Then I want to give you some preface statements about imprecation, and then dive into the text, and, and we'll be done in time tonight. Let's, let's look at the psalm in its entirety. O God, Asaph writes, the heathen are come into thine inheritance. Thy holy temple have they defiled. They have laid Jerusalem on heaps. The dead bodies of thy servants have they given to be meat under the fowls of the heaven, the flesh of thy saints under the beast of the earth. Their blood have they shed like water round about Jerusalem, and there was none to bury them. We are become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to them that are round about us. How long, Lord? Wilt thou be angry forever? Shall thy jealousy burn like fire? And then here's an imprecatory psalm here. Pour out thy wrath upon the heathen, that have not known thee and upon the kingdoms that have not called upon thy name for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his dwelling place. Oh, remember not against us former iniquities. Let thy tender mercies speedily prevent us for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation for the glory of thy name and deliver us and purge away our sins for thy name's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, where is their God? Let him be known among the heathen in our sight by the revenging of the blood of thy servants, which is shed. Let the sighing of the prisoner come before thee. According to the greatness of thy power, preserve thou, thou those that are appointed to die. And here's, here's, here's imprecation. And render unto our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom their reproach, wherewith they have reproached thee, O Lord. So we thy people and the sheep of thy pastor will give thee thanks forever. Forever we will show forth thy praise to all generations. So let me give you some preface statements because you look at that and say, if I'm supposed to pray like Asaph prayed, 
I'm a little uncomfortable with that. I don't know if that's okay today, given the teachings of the New Testament. Preface statement number one, imprecation on God's enemies is not just found in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. So the idea of it's an old covenant thing really isn't isn't, uh, accurate in my opinion. I think imprecation is a New Testament practice as well. Let me prove it in Scripture. Luke chapter 10, when Jesus sent out his disciples. um, Go to the next, there we go. But into whatsoever city ye enter, and they receive you not. He's sending out his disciples two by two. Go your ways out into the streets of the same and say, even the very dust of your city which cleaveth on us, we do wipe off against you, notwithstanding. Be ye sure of this, that the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. Next verse. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe unto thee, Chorazin. Woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which had been done in you, they had a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes." But it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which are exalted to heaven, shall be thrust down to hell. He that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me, and he that despiseth me despiseth him that sent me. That's imprecation. Do you see that? It's exactly what it is. Paul, the Apostle Paul does the same thing. Galatians chapter 1, in verse 8, look at this scripture passage. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which ye have preached unto you. Here's imprecation. Let him be accursed. So if someone comes in your church and preaches a false gospel, the apostle Paul said, if he's unrepentant about that, you let him be accursed. That's imprecation. Second Thessalonians 1, speaking of Christ's coming, seeing it as a righteous thing. That means it's right. With God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. Talk about those that persecuted the Thessalonians. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That's imprecatory. Uh, Jesus uh, speaks this way. To the face of of these religious leaders in Matthew 23, verse 33. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Imprecation. He does it again when he's speaking about Judas in Matthew 26. And he answered and said, he that dipped his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The son of man goeth as it is written of him. But woe, woe, that's prophetic language that is setting a curse upon somebody. Woe. Unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed, it had been good for that man if he had not been born. Those are the words of Jesus. Peter in Acts chapter 1 quotes an imprecatory psalm talking about Judas. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation be desolate and let no man dwell therein. That's an imprecatory psalm. Jesus taught his disciples. Remember when he taught his disciples to pray these words, thy kingdom come? You remember that? Say, say yes. yes. Amen. All right. So when he when we pray that prayer, thy kingdom come, you understand we are praying an imprecatory prayer. Because when the kingdom comes, that means Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes, every kingdom standing against his kingdom will be destroyed. It's called the last judgment. That's imprecation. When the apostle John prayed in in, in Revelation, even so come Lord Jesus. And by the way, that's a good prayer for us to pray, too. That's imprecation. Because when Jesus is coming, he's coming to judge the wicked. When we say, Jesus, come, we aren't just praying, come and take the saints away. We are praying for Jesus to come and have the final word. Are you with me? 
That's imprecatory in nature. The point is this, is that it's not just an Old Testament blood and guts type of thing. Jesus even displayed it. His apostles did as well. Here's another preface statement. Imprecations were calculated petitions, reasoned meditations, and divine inspirations, not spontaneous explosions of a bad temper. It's very important. Now, there are examples in the Old Testament, no doubt I could point to them right now, um, Old Testament narratives and history where there's actions and, and attitudes that are sinful and not to be emulated. But the Psalms are expressions of public worship to be modeled. Which implies that, that if we're going to pray a modern version of imprecation upon God's enemies, we better be careful that those prayers remain worshipful to God and are not explosions of a bad temper or the results of our flesh getting the best of us. But I do believe that imprecation can be part of our worship because it was part of Israel's hymn book. Like they sang these things. And we'll talk about that here in just a little bit. Last preface statement. Imprecations were not expressions of personal vengeance. The psalmist's passion was for the triumph of God's justice, not the satisfaction of personal malice. Now you learning this? Here's why I want you to learn this kind of stuff. Because there might be some people who read their Bible that don't know Jesus and they're looking to trip you up or they're looking to question the validity of his word and they might say, well, that's just, that's hateful and that's wrong. How are you going to defend that? I'm trying to teach you tonight how to defend this kind of stuff, how to understand this, how to pray it yourself. The imprecatory prayers, this is so important. In the Bible, they're rarely prayed over an individual. Normally, they're prayed over a class or group of people that are knowingly wicked and are openly unrepentant enemies of God. And that's an important point. Imprecatory prayers assume that the wicked are hardened and unrepentant. In other words, the psalmist calls for divine judgment against so long as they persist in their rebellion against God. Now, you might be thinking, what about Jesus' teaching where he says, love your enemies? This doesn't sound very loving. Well, let me speak to that. Imprecation isn't about our personal enemies. It's about God's enemies. So when somebody makes us mad at work or cuts us off in traffic or stabs us in the back or hurts somebody that we love, we don't get to go and pray an imprecatory psalm over their life. Some politician makes a bad decision against the Bible, we don't just all of a sudden get to start swinging imprecatory prayers around. It is a bummer. We are taught in the New Testament, listen, the New Testament teaching is how to deal with individual personal enemies. And Jesus teaches us, pray for them. Bless them. Return our good to their evil. Forgive them. Always be willing to be restored in a relationship with them. Imprecation doesn't violate the teaching of Scripture for how to deal kindly with our enemies because imprecation is not about our enemies. It's not about our personal offenses, okay? It's used in worship and in prayer in Psalm 79. You know over what situation? The Babylonians coming in and destroying the temple and, and literally killing Jewish people, leaving them out in the street to rot and be eaten by the birds, not somebody that made you mad on Facebook. Like, this is, this is huge stuff. The situations that call for imprecation are huge, huge. So then I've got to make this point as your pastor. Don't mistake the imprecatory prayers of the psalmist with today's version of being a cultural warrior. Say it one more time. 
Don't mistake the imprecatory prayers of the psalmist with today's version of being a cultural warrior. Listen closely. These imprecations are divinely God-inspired prayer songs. They are not flesh-driven social media posts. The subtle danger of me propping up the imprecatory psalms as an appropriate mode of lament and worship before God is that the cultural warriors under the sound of my voice will hear an affirmation for their flesh-driven, impulsive, and divisive spirit when it comes to people, especially in politics, that disagree with them. Now, here's one of the devil's subtle attacks on the church and the gospel in 2021. He wants to get us more fired up about patriotism than evangelism. And so he understands that if he can get the Christian to start acting the fool on social media or any other platform about their political beliefs, then that Christian will be less vocal about their spiritual beliefs or they'll at least lose credibility for when they do speak up about their spiritual beliefs, at least with those who are different than them. My point is that if you right now in your life have an unmerciful and untempered bend about you, you might want to ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand the essence and spirits of the, uh, 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 of the imprecatory Psalms as being that of lament and humility, not vengeance. That way you don't take this message as an affirmation from your pastor to keep being divisive and destroying your credibility to share the gospel locally with anyone different than you. I expected a few more amens because I think that's right. I'm trying to strike a balance because one side of the aisle says that's too mean. And I would say, no, not if you do it right. It can be very appropriate. You don't just say because it sounds mean and feels mean and doesn't doesn't line up with a few verses that you 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 pick from the New Testament. When you look at the Bible as a whole, imprecation can still be part of our prayer life today. I'm going to teach you how. But there's another side of the aisle where I said they're like, just just give me permission, pastor. That's all I need is just give me a wink and I'm ready to go with this because right now in your life, due to things going on in our nation, you have an unmerciful bend, a very impatient bend about you. You have an edge about you right now. And so, and I I respect your passion. I do. But, but if you have that bend, you need to really pay attention to the spirit and essence of proper imprecation. Okay. Really, you really, really do. So, so, so with that said, Psalms 39 teaches us, I think, how imprecation can remain worshipful, what it can do for a believer today. Look at verses one through five again. This gives us the context of what's going on. Oh God, the heathen are coming to thy inheritance. Thy holy temple have they defiled. They have laid Jerusalem on heaps. The dead bodies of thy servants have they given to be meat unto the fowls of the heaven, the flesh of thy saints and of the beasts of the earth. Their blood have they shed like water round about Jerusalem and there was none to bury them. We are become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to them are round about us. How long, Lord, would thou be angry forever? Shall thy jealousy burn like fire? What's going on? Well, most scholars agree. I think it's it's obvious that, that Asaph is lamenting right here over what he's been lamenting over in the Psalms previous to this one that he wrote. And that's when Jerusalem came in, burned down the temple and, and under the, the leadership of, I mean, Babylonians came into Jerusalem, burned down the temple under the leadership of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, in this Psalm, the way he lamented this is different than the way he's lamented it before. The majority of his lamentation up to this point has been about the building itself. The temple itself, that's what's ticked him off. That's what's made him sad. That's what he's been grieving. Right here, he is grieving something deeper than that. He's grieving the people. Did you see how he said they're, they're all dead? And not that they're dead. We didn't even get a burial. Now, if you knew this in, in Jewish days, okay, this was shameful. 
If you didn't bury your loved ones, not only did you forfeit closure, but it was shameful culturally to your family. It was not good. And that's why he said we become a reproach to our neighbors because, God, you not only allowed them to come in here and ransack the temple and destroy the temple and kill our people, but you've also let them do it so violently and in such a scornful way that we just feel so shamed right now. And so Asaph bluntly asked God, how long are you going to be angry at us? How long are you going to, is your jealousy for us going to lead to our punishment? Now, Asaph, Asaph rather, is acknowledging that, that yes, his people deserve God's punishment. They do. They've rejected him for long enough that this is God's punishment on their life. But at the same time, he's pleading with God to put an end to the punishment as if God is overdoing it. It's safe to say that he disagrees with how severe God has been, or at least the duration of God's chastisement upon his people. So he's simply being honest and humbly complaining to God about it. What's the point? Imprecation deepens our relationship with God. Now, now I want you to think about this. A lot of Christians are uncomfortable talking to God this way in prayer. We've been taught that prayer is reverent. Any form of honesty and complaint to God seems disrespectful and should be out of bounds in the believer's life. But I submit to you, church, that honest lament involved in imprecation, even when it's complaint, is a healthy form of communication with God because it's like a release valve to get the grief and the anger and the bitterness and other emotions out of our hearts. What Asaph is doing is, is an application of what Peter taught. Cast all your care upon God. Why? He cares for you. On top of that, Asaph seems to be rehearsing over all the things that hurt him and his people so deeply. Why rehash these things? Why bring them back up to God's attention in such great detail when God was the author of it all? Why remind God of something he, he already has known about? He caused it. How can that be helpful to Asaph? How can it be helpful to the situation? Here's how. Being honest to God, even humbly complaining to him, humbly asking him why or how long, or even reminding me of the very things that he already knows about, doing this deepens our relationship with him. Let me explain. Imagine coming home from a day at work in which you and maybe three co-workers had just been fired. That's a bad day. But you decide not to say anything to your spouse or best friend because after all, there's nothing they can do about it. It's over. Imagine now um, that same day you have a car wreck. But again, you don't talk to your family about what happened. Later that week, you get mugged at gunpoint. But once more, you keep it to yourself. That's not normal. And here's why it's not normal, because we talk to the people we love about the important things in our life. No, at the end of each and every day, a healthy spouse or a healthy marriage is made up of wives and husbands that actually talk with each other about their day. And about their kids and about their plans for the next day. And parents talk with their kids about how their day at school was and they refuse to settle with one word answers like it was okay. Friends chat, chat about everything under the sun. Siblings catch up with what's been going on in each other's life. Why? Because people who love each other talk with each other about their lives. And when they stop doing that, the relationship stops growing. This is where lament and imprecation can do for us in prayer and in worship. It can cause us to lay out everything before God. 
To complain humbly and honestly, to ask our questions, to give God details of things that hurt us, even though he already knows about them. That kind of prayer over time will deepen our relationship with him. But sadly, many believers never get to this kind of depth in their relationship with God because they never talk to him about the important and emotional matters of their life. Their prayer life is more about getting something from God instead of simply talking to God. Our prayer life, listen, Christians, should be more about talking to the one we love than getting something from him. It should be that way. That's the first way that imprecation helps the worshiper. It gives us an opportunity to deepen our relationship with the Lord. Let's continue. Look at verse 6. Pour out thy wrath upon the heathen that have not known thee, and upon the kingdoms that have not called upon thy name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his dwelling place. Oh, remember not against us former iniquities. Let thy tender mercy speedily prevent us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of thy name and deliver us and purge away our sins for thy name's sake. Imprecation number two purifies our motives. Notice that while the psalmist was praying God's judgment upon his enemies, he was also acknowledging his own sin. King David did this as well in one of his imprecatory psalms. I want you to look at it on the screen. Psalms 139. Surely that will slay the wicked. This is imprecatory. Depart from me, therefore, ye bloody men, for they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? And am not I greed with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. But then watch what he said. Search me, O God. And know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any way, wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. See, imprecation, when we're doing it right, it leads to self-evaluation. That's how we know it's not vengeful. It's not vindictive. It's not bitter. It's not sinfully angry. Because thinking about their great wickedness causes us to think about our great wickedness. But further, the psalmist gives us the proper motive for imprecation in verse 9 when he said this, for the glory of thy name. God, this is for thy name's sake. This wasn't about Asaph's reputation. It wasn't about his name. It wasn't about his personal offense. This was righteous indignation over the holy name of his God that was being tarnished. That's what led him to imprecation in prayer and in worship. And we could do for more believers who are willing to be righteously angry in prayer over the name of God being tarnished and over God's glory being tainted. There's not enough believers that are fired up today when God's name is taken in vain. And when God's glory is diminished. It's almost like believers today can sleep through that because we've gotten so used to it. It makes me think of David, and we're about to be in 1 Samuel 17, with the story of David and Goliath. I think a major point of that text is the reason for which David was willing to stand against Goliath when even his older warrior brothers would not. Do you remember what happened? He was running some bread and cheese up to his brothers, trying to check on them because his dad hadn't heard from them in over a month. And when he arrived on the scene, here was Goliath, and he heard for the first time what his brothers had heard for 40 days by now. And you know what he heard? He heard the giant defy the name of God, defy the armies of Israel. And, 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 and that those very words 
they caused his older brothers to run in fear every day. But not David. He was just there to drop off cheese and bread. He heard somebody that was diminishing the glory of his God and attacking the name of his God. And he looked at his brother and he said, what is this? And where are you going? Is there not a cause? He wasn't personally offended. He was offended because somebody was talking about his God. Somebody's diminishing the glory of his God. And that led David to take his sling and pick up a stone and with courage and with the help of God, go and fight Goliath. And that's why we should pray these imprecatory prayers if we get to this point in our nation or in our life or any circumstance. It is because God's glory is at stake. It's not about our name. It's not about our reputation. It's not about our personal hurt. It's about our God. Now don't take David's example as a green light to pick up a sling and a stone and charge the Capitol building. We fight God's glory on our knees. That's how we fight for it. Are you hearing me? Imprecatory prayer. We can lament and we should over the fact that God's name is being drugged through and treated with so much contempt by so many people today. And we need to talk to God about that. No, it should fire us up not to grandstand on Facebook, but to head to our prayer closets. And say, God, for the sake of your name, for the sake of your church. For the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of your gospel, for the sake of your glory, rid the world of those who oppose you and will not repent. We know we deserve what we've received in so many ways, but God, do to them as you've done to us. Don't let them get away with taking your name in vain and diminishing your glory and your holiness and persecuting your church. I believe that with all my heart that that's biblical. Imprecation can, number one, deepen our relationship with God. Purify our motives to be about his glory, not ours. And then notice verse 10. Wherefore should the heathen say, where is their God? You can hear the passion in his voice. Let him be known among the heathen in our sight by the revenging of the blood of thy servants, which is shed. He was not passive about the fact that the Babylonians were arrogantly denying the existence of his God. And that's the third thing that imprecation can do for the worshiper. It challenges our passivity toward injustice. This is so important. Here's what I mean by that. All too often, oh, please listen. Christians simply wring their hands in the face of oppression and violence and injustice and sin as though we're powerless to do anything to stop it. And here's what we say. Oh, well. We, we live in a fallen world. Those things are going to happen. We just have to stay focused right here, not get discouraged. You know, this world is not our home. We're just a passing through. While all that is true, it's almost like we become so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good. We tend to be overly spiritual and forget that we still live in a real world. We want to bury our heads in the sand and just focus on heaven. All the while, we aren't feeling what God is feeling when it comes to oppression and violence and injustice and sin. We have forgotten that injustice is still an offense to a perfectly just God. And that is not a good place to be as a believer. 
I would say it this way. In the face of monstrous evil, the worst possible response is to feel nothing. So that intentional imprecation in our prayer life can, can challenge our passivity about these things in our world instead of letting us ignore their reality. After all, we just got to go to church and focus on us. You know where I was shaken about this truth? Is when I, I, I saw a fa- an article go through on my Facebook page several months ago about sex trafficking and human trafficking. And, and I, I believe that, that it was talking about, I, I want to say it's Georgia, I could be wrong, but where, where they, they uh, went and convicted those, uh, those men for, for the human trafficking. And that, there's a bunch of them in one location, rescued those kids. I'm sorry for being vague, but, but I, that's about as much as I can remember about that specific situation. I think that's what it was. Here's what I remember it did to me, though. It led me into reading a couple articles about the reality of that. Right, so here I am in my suit and tie, go to my safe office every day. Me and my wife and my son, we lock our doors at night and never think twice about anybody coming in. Drop my son off at school, pick him up every single day. Never even has gone through my mind that he he would get kidnapped or become a victim of sex trafficking. And when I begin to see the, the faces of some of those children, I'm not sure I'd ever been shaken privately in a way those pictures and articles shook me that day. Because I instantly begin to think of my 10-year-old. And I instantly begin to think of the little girls that run around in this building. Some of your grandkids, some of your kids. And I thought, what if that was a kid from fellowship? I would be devastated. I would be enraged. I would be imprecatory without trying. But there are kids all around us. Yet even in our own region. Who are victims of this. And we come to church and sing our worship songs. And drop our kids off at the nursery. And we do it over and over and over. And it's like our face is buried in the sand when there is real life injustice all around us. And we're concerned about a president right now. That's your biggest fear. That's what rattles you the most. Is that we lost or you lost or your friends lost an election. That's what fires you up. When kids... Kids are being taken from their homes and trafficked from one filthy gentleman to the next. And we feel nothing about that. And children are being aborted by the second. And we do nothing about it. We pray no imprecation. Are you with me? The things that fire us up reveal how weak we are. How fleshly we are. How distracted we are. You're so caught up in conspiracy theories that you fail to even think of the real realities 
And that burdens me. It burdens me because if God's people would start feeling the oppression and injustice like God feels it, maybe God would do something about it. Maybe God is waiting for us to quit arguing about stupid stuff and start praying about things that actually hurt his heart. God, help us tonight. God, reorient our focus. Give our passions or or, or take our misplaced passions and put them in the right place. Let me move on. Number four, imprecation. Protects us from sinful vindictiveness. There is is no room for a vindictive attitude in prayer. God will not accept that attitude. The whole point, watch, of imprecation is that we are leaving God's enemies in his hands. That's the whole point of these prayers. That we're giving them over to God. I'm going to give you four statements. I think they're all worth remembering. Imprecatory prayer is the substitute For a violent response to violence. Imprecatory prayer teaches us to lift our voices, not our swords. Take a look at both of those statements. Imprecatory prayer is the substitute for a violent response to violence. It teaches us to lift our voices, not our swords. Number three, imprecatory prayer is surrendering the last word to God. Statement four, imprecatory prayer is exercising our faith in God's righteous judgment and sovereignty over all men, good and evil. Here's the point. Instead of getting even, get busy in prayer. Prayer is what makes the real difference. If you can type about it, you can pray about it. If you can talk about it, you can pray about it. If you can complain about it, you can pray about it. If you can get mad about it, you can pray about it. Prayer is the answer to every problem, every frustration, every heartache, every sin, every ounce of injustice, every bit of oppression. Pray about everything. Because when you do, you leave it in God's hands and you protect yourself against sinful vindictiveness. There's one more thing that imprecation can do for the worshiper. Look at verse 13. I love how he ends. So we, thy people and sheep of thy pastor, will give thee thanks forever. We will show forth thy praise to all generations. Imprecation reassures our heart of God's love for his people. You know what Asaph concluded? I'm on the right side. And maybe when he looked at all the bloody bodies in the streets of Jerusalem, he had a hard time believing he was on the winning side. Because they just lost, didn't they, Dad? How long, God? But as he processed and lamented and showed worship through imprecation in prayer, he finally came to the conclusion, okay, it doesn't feel like it. It doesn't seem like I can see it. But I have been reassured. I am Yours. You are my shepherd. I am your sheep. You love us. You care for us. And when you're frustrated, 
And you're angry, maybe even righteously angry, over the injustice, oppression, and wickedness of the world in which we live. You need to worship, if you're going to imprecate, you need to worship to the point where you can be reassured that in the end, you win. And you're going to leave it to God because right now in this old sin-cursed world, the scoreboard might say more for the wicked team than for the righteous team. And you might feel overwhelmed by that. And every once in a while, you might even leak a little bit. But if you'll remain worshipful, and lament and imprecation, just like Asaph did, you will get to the point. And all you got to do, friend, all you got to do is go read Revelation. And we're reminded Amen. that in the fourth quarter, there's going to be more points on the righteous side Amen. than the wicked side. It don't really matter what's on the scoreboard in the second quarter or the third quarter or the start of the fourth quarter, which I feel like we're in. What happens when Jesus brings down the new Jerusalem and the, and the new heaven to the new earth and you're saved and you're on team righteous, you win. And so you might not win for 80 years of your existence on earth. You might feel frustrated as a Christian believer, but for all eternity, you'll be on the right side. So take a deep breath. Saints in 2021. Seriously, every day in your prayer closet, take a deep breath. Do the limbrication if you need to. Lament if you need to. Say, God, how long if you need to? Talk to God humbly and honestly. Complain to God about what frustrates you as a believer in 2021. But before you walk out of your prayer closet, say, God, thank you that you care for me. Thank you that you love for me. Thank you that you're my shepherd and I'm your sheep. And at the end of the day, we win. Amen. And then go to work. And show some joy. You are God's child. Be positive on your post. You are God's child. Quit acting, church member, like we're losing all the time. We're all right. We're all right. America's not great. The rest of the world's not great, by the way. It's a sin-cursed world. But we are God's children. We are God's church. And the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Somebody say amen. amen. That's how I describe imprecation. It's hard. It's hard to balance. It's, it, it's, it's, it's convicting, is it not? That imprecation doesn't show up in our prayer life. But it tends to show up everywhere else. It's not worshipful everywhere else. It's worshipful when it's you and God. Done in a humble and righteous spirit because you are concerned about God's holy name. If you agree with the Bible, say amen. Stand to your feet. Let's spend some time in prayer tonight.